Good to see you here on this um, wonderful weekend that we have as fall does uh, sort of scooch in, whether we're ready for it or not. Uh, I'm sure that you've noticed, you may not have paid close attention, but um, zombies are all the rage these days. They're in commercials, they're in uh, books, uh, movies. Uh, in Google's uh, news feed this morning, there were two articles on zombies. Uh, they're sort of everywhere. I realized we had crossed some sort of cultural Rubicon when I picked up a book at an airport uh, bookstore. It was entitled Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. And I thought if uh, zombies have invaded the world of Jane Austen, there's probably no place they haven't already gone. So it wasn't entirely surprising when I uh, sat in the back of uh, an orientation session for college students and the professor framed his remarks about school and liberal arts and life and everything that was going to unfold for them, framed all of his remarks in the context of zombies. And uh, his basic message was, look, there's a lot of people like zombies that are out there looking for brains, but not so they can think. There's a lot of people who don't think. They just follow other people who are not thinking. There's a lot of zombies out there. Don't be one. Well, I would uh, set that challenge in front of you this morning. Don't be a zombie. Don't go there. And I I really need, over the course of the next few months... For you to think deeply, and not just to follow well-worn trails, but to think again uh, about the most important issues, in particular about the person, the work, the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We are about to begin that process of looking at the the most un-zombie-like person who ever lived. If uh, you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. And as you are going there, let me uh, just take a couple minutes and set the context for this study. There are four different books in the New Testament that report on the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, they, They are biographies, although not biographies in the classic sense. These four books were written specifically to persuade us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is the Son of God, and that he came to rescue us. They don't give a lot of the information that biographies classically reveal. Instead, they're quite focused on the last week of Christ's life. As a matter of fact, they're so focused on his death and resurrection that some have suggested that they really are passion narratives with a long introduction. They're really an account of his death with a long lead-up. Now, these uh, four books are referred to as Gospels. And the word gospel means good news. And they're called Gospels, or good news, because first of all, the information they relay is good. We're told that we can be reconciled with God. We can be forgiven. We can be granted eternal life. Right? That, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have 
everlasting life. This is really, really good news. As Scott reported, we don't have to do anything except stop running. God is pursuing you. It's good news. It's also news. Okay, the, the Gospels are not philosophical treatises. They're not books written to tell us how we look deep inside ourselves to sort of unleash our potential. They don't, they don't head down that pathway at all. They report a historical record of what happened. They're giving us news. Okay? And, and the only way you get news is, is, is if somebody tells you the news. This is not information that you could figure out on your own if you started with the right first principles. You can't go into a lab and, and uncover the gospel. This is news. The gospels are referred to as good news. And we have four of them because they come at things from different angles. Each of the gospel writers reports things from a different perspective. Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. And so he opens with a genealogy because he wants people, Jews, to understand that Jesus is, is tied back to their story, right? That Jesus fits in with Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and on forward. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies that are recorded in their book, right? He's the, he's the one the prophets were talking about. If a Gentile picked up the Gospel of Matthew and started reading, would not understand the genealogies, would not understand some of the words that he came across, like Messiah. Th these words would not mean anything to them. There would be references to people that did not understand. Matthew wasn't writing for Gentiles. Matthew was writing for Jews. Mark was written for more of a Roman audience. Uh, Mark is probably the first gospel that was written. It's the shortest. It's the most basic. It's the simplest we believe that Matthew and Luke was look, were looking at Mark's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are, are called synoptic gospels because they're so similar. And we believe that Matthew and Luke looked at Mark's gospel and then sort of went out in slightly different directions. So Mark's is the most basic. He does not include genealogies. Instead, he adds things like an explanation of the Passover. Because his readers would not know what the Passover was. The Jews in Matthew's gospel would understand what the Passover was. But Mark's readers wouldn't. And so it's a different angle. He's talking more about Christ as a, as a servant. Luke's gospel goes in a different direction yet again. Luke is a historian. And so he includes lots of details that the others left out in order to put it in a particular place and context so that other people would understand it in an orderly sequence. Luke is also a physician, and so he emphasizes the humanity of Christ. Today, most everybody will concede that Jesus Christ was a person. The debate is over whether or not he was God. Well, for centuries... There were lots of people who believed that Jesus was God, but they weren't certain whether or not he was really a person. And Luke speaks to their concerns. As a physician, as a doctor, he makes observations that doctors would make, and he's emphasizing the humanity of Christ. Well, John comes at things differently than the other three. 
John is written much later than the first three. You, you might remember that after Judas betrayed Christ, he uh, ended his life. Of the remaining 11 apostles, 10 of them will be martyred for their faith. John is the exception. He's tortured for his belief, but then he's banished to an island. And he lives longer than they do, and he writes in the 90s. Okay? Not the 1990s, but he writes in the 90s. And he writes uh, from a different vantage point. He writes to persuade his readers that Jesus is God. And we know that this is his mission in part because he, he begins in an, in an entirely different way. Right? He's going for the big ideas, the big cosmic truths. He starts his gospel very much like Genesis 1 begins. In the beginning, Genesis goes, in the beginning, God created. And John goes, in the beginning was the word. He, he takes the word logos, which the Greek philosophers had used, and he uses it to, to refer to Christ as the big organizing idea, the big principle, the Word of God. This is Jesus existing before he became a man. He's eternal. John is making this point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was present at creation. He helped create everything that has been created. So, so we know that John is arguing that Jesus is God because of the way he begins. And we also know this because he, he emphasizes a number of the I am statements that Christ makes. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the way and the truth and the life. These are huge claims to divinity. We also know that, uh, that John is writing to persuade us that Jesus is God because he tells us that. In John chapter 20, verse 30. We read, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, so the things that he actually wrote, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are four different vantage points. By the way, we don't, um, we don't have stained glass windows here at... Um, at Christ Church, at the Lake Forest campus anyway. But if you uh, were at a church that had stained glass, you will often see the four, gospel, um, the four gospel writers portrayed by these images which come out of Revelation chapter 4. So Mark, you see, is represented as a man because his just plain spoken, simple, not as much symbolism, not as many things going on in Mark's gospel. Matthew is represented as a lion because he's writing to say Jesus is, to the Jewish audience, Jesus is the lion of Judah. He comes through the tribe of Judah as the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke is that Jesus is represented as an ox. This was an animal of service because Jesus or Luke represents all the service that Jesus does. It's also an animal of sacrifice. It would be slaughtered for sacrificial reasons. And of course, Jesus is killed, sheds his blood for our sins. And then finally, uh, John is represented as an eagle because John ha has a, the ability to see things that others don't see. He looks further ahead. He sees the cosmic truths uh, about Jesus that he's God fully and finally. 
So there's different takes, different representations of the story of Christ's life. Well, as we go back to John chapter 1, we see that, again, it opens with these big ideas about uh, Jesus being present at creation, fully God in his pre-incarnate state. And then it turns and it introduces John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin and the one who comes to prepare the way for Christ. Opening day for the Bears. Let me put this in a football analogy. John the Baptist is a blocking fullback. Okay? He doesn't get the ball, but he is, he is preparing the path. Right, So Jesus is the Messiah. He has the ball, and he is following John uh, to, 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 to run up the middle. So John the Baptist is uh, talked about, and, and there's an interchange here that's captured in John 1, the passage we're going to look at. And in this interchange, you need to know that at this moment, John is the, the star. John is the, um, he's the upperclassman. He's the, he's the rock star. The big crowds are turning out to hear John the Baptist when he's calling people to repent and be baptized. No one really knows Jesus yet. Okay, but that's about to change, and I want to read this passage to you, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 35 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 1, 35 through the end of the chapter. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and say to him, We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Nazareth was a small town located in the hills, noted mainly for its thieves. Um, Not a great reputation as towns go, so uh, you, you get the response. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
The first chapter of John is a profoundly rich chapter. We could easily spend two years here. We could spend six months just looking at, at everything that we could gain from the different titles that are used to refer to Christ in this chapter. Uh, Lamb of God, Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, Rabbi. These are big ideas behind each one of them. We could spend a lot of time here. I just want you to see one particular uh, set of words here. I want you to see the invitation that Philip extends to Nathaniel. Philip goes to his brother and he says, we have found the one, right? We have found this man. We have found the one everybody was talking about. And when Nathaniel starts to talk, Philip's response is to say, come and see, right? Come and see. Come and meet him. I can't, I can't answer all your questions. Just come and see this man. I want to set that invitation in front of you today. Come and see Jesus. I promise you, he is bigger than you think. He is, he is wiser than you think. He is more shocking and more glorious and more daring and more disruptive and more profound and more disturbing and more wonderful and gracious and loving than you think. There is nobody like this man. Come and see who he is. Next week we begin this uh, adventure at long last. Uh, It is going to be an exploration of the life of Jesus Christ. This is, uh, if you've been around, this is uh, fence post four. And so we have, in various falls, sort of uh, slowed down and done a little bit of a focused uh, attack on a big Christian principle. The first time we did this, Fence Post 1 was around the question or idea of the Bible and authority. I, I argue that there are six big questions out there that you really need to give some thought to. Because everybody has answers to them. The question is whether they're good answers. But the questions are, who am I? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What happens when I die? What is really real? What is ultimately important? Is there a God? And if so, what is he like? And then, how do I know this? How do I know what I know? How do I decide what is true? And in Fence Post 1, we looked at the answer to to the sixth question. How do I know what I know? And and I argue that there are four sources of authority, reason, tradition, experience, and revelation, or truth that God reveals to us. And and then said, look, God reveals truth to us through Christ and through creation, but he also reveals truth to us in this book. Right? And so we looked at the importance of the Bible and its authority in our lives. Fence Post 2 was about the, the fifth question. What is ultimate reality? What, is there a God? If so, what is he like? And so we looked at how we can know God. We looked at his triune nature and we looked at aspects of his being. What is he like? We explored that in Fence Post 2. Fence Post 3 focused more on us and our situation. What is the nature of being human? 
and, and where did sin and evil come from? And what's up with death and judgment and hell and salvation and heaven? Well, this study, which will include sermons and small groups and reading and daily devotions and supplemental lectures and all kinds of things over the course of the next uh, seven weeks. We're actually going to take a break in the middle, but it's a six-week study spread out over seven weeks. This study is focused on the life of Christ. Theologians often divide the study of Jesus into a study of, of who he was, of what he taught, and of what he did. And we're looking at this a little bit differently than, than normal. We're looking at the life of Christ. We're looking at Jesus from before time began all the way out into the future projection. And so the big invitation here is come and see this man. Come and look at Jesus. When I was in high school... Um, I had a friend who lived right on the Mississippi River. And we would go to his house uh, to go water skiing uh, uh, during the summers all the time. And we would always go uh, in the, the boat. We would go across the river to the Iowa side of the Mississippi because there was a, there was a back channel there. There was a, about a mile-long strip of uh, the river that didn't ever empty back into the river. It just was this... This backwater. And we would go back there because, first of all, the water was warmer. And secondly, because there was no current. So it was a nicer place for us to go back and water ski. I would like to suggest that many people, when it comes to Jesus, get caught in one of those backwater sections. And, and it's nice. The water's warm. There's no current. Easy to stay there. The problem is um, you never make it to the Atlantic Ocean. You never actually get to see how big this is. And over the course of the last 2,000 years, billions of people have headed down this path. And so we know pretty well where people get stuck. Right? It's, you're unlikely to get stuck in any new or novel place. There's about a handful of places today that people get stuck when it comes to looking at Jesus. And so I want to say, don't get stuck in any of these five backwaters. Number one, baby Jesus. Some people never move beyond baby Jesus, which either makes you think of uh, Christmas and the nativity scene and the little infant Jesus or it makes you think of Ricky Bobby in uh, Talladega Nights, the Will Ferrell character and his prayer to baby Jesus. I'm actually not using the term baby Jesus in either of those two ways. I'm using baby Jesus to refer to the Jesus as understood by a five-year-old. Now, there is nothing wrong and a lot right with the way a five-year-old thinks about Jesus. Matthew 18, when, when Christ is asked, who's greatest in the kingdom of God? He says, I tell you the truth, unless you become like a child, right? You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Shocking thing for Christ to say. So there's a lot to be celebrated about a, a childlike faith, a childlike understanding of God. But there's a difference between a five-year-old thinking about God in certain ways 
and a 25-year-old thinking about God in the same way, right? Or a 45-year-old who's never really moved beyond the five-year-old understanding of Jesus. At some point, this isn't, this isn't particularly healthy. And many people are very, uh, not innocent and naive, just very childish and infantile in their understanding of Jesus. A number of years ago, I read a, a classic biography uh, of Douglas MacArthur, the great uh, World War II general. Uh, it was entitled American Caesar. And MacArthur's a fascinating guy, uh, unbelievable strengths and gifts. He, when he went through West Point, he set records in the academic arena, in the leadership arena, and military skills, athletic accomplishments. At the time that Manchester wrote this uh, biography, some of MacArthur's records were still in place. He was, he was fearless. He was a leader among men. There, there were lots of upsides to MacArthur. He was also a phenomenally flawed, tragic figure at the same time. There were th- his weaknesses were profound. As great as he was uh, around men, he was, uh, he was that bad around women. Uh, this probably had something to do with the fact that when he went to West Point, his mom moved into a hotel right next to West Point's campus and watched him every day, all day, and uh, he talked with her every day. He never really got much separation from his mom. That probably skewed his understanding of women. He was also very flawed, and Manchester really lets him have it in this biography. He was also very flawed in his understanding of God. And, and, and Manchester said there's just no excuse for someone who is this smart in so many areas to have never grown in his understanding about God and Christ. Some people stop in the backwater of baby Jesus. Some people get stuck in what I'll call college Jesus. As some of you may know, uh, college is where many people's faith goes to die. Uh, They get into a religion class. They're thinking perhaps that this is going to be like a really beefed up Sunday school. And instead, they're reading about the documentary hypothesis and redaction criticism and being told that uh, the people who you think wrote these books not only didn't write the books, they may not have even existed. And it just doesn't do much to foster uh, a love of God and a relationship with Christ. Now, the truth is, most of us don't remember much about what we learned in college, right? Some of us have a hard time remembering what we took in college. And so it's, uh, it's not that you have specific challenges if you were in a religion class. It's just this broad sense that it's not true. That it doesn't hold up to rigorous analysis. Well, I'm here to tell you that it is true. I'm here to tell you that, that 10 or 30 or 40 years ago when you heard this stuff, There were strong rebuttals to it then. You just didn't know it. And that that many of the arguments that were being made then were 10, 20, 40 years old at the time they were being made. And that that the last decades, especially the last 20 years, have gone very far to substantiate the trustworthiness of the New Testament documents. 
We can put our confidence in these. And in fact, in the first lecture as part of this series on September 23rd, I'm just going to talk about how we can have confidence that, that this information is true. But some people get stuck with college Jesus. There's a third group that gets derailed around what I'll call Hollywood Jesus. Or the Jesus as reported in the National Enquirer. Every so many years, somebody like uh, Dan Brown will write a book like The Da Vinci Code and will make a number of uh, suggestions or accusations that uh, disrupt lots of people, right? They'll say Jesus was married or uh, uh, Jesus, the disciples were part of a big conspiracy or uh, the Bible was written in a secret code or the books that are in the Bible aren't the books that should be in the Bible, or Jesus was a time traveler, or a space alien, or whatever it is, the more bizarre the claims, the greater the publicity. And it, and it, it gives people like me gray hair, and we, we jump up and down saying, don't read that book unless you are willing to listen to why it's 100% gibberish. It's nonsense. Read this book instead. Right? Read this book instead. But lots of people don't read this book. They read those books and they say, well, you know, it looks pretty clear that if you're really educated, you understand that, you know, Jesus is hanging out with Elvis on some island in the Bermuda Triangle. And that's, the, that's what science proves. And you just go, no. So don't get led astray by Hollywood Jesus. The fifth backwater, or fourth backwater, I guess, is what I'll call religious Jesus. You have uh, probably seen this picture. There are a number um, painted by the same artist. This is Warner Salmon's um, image of Christ painted in 1941. Three million copies were sold in the first two years by some estimates, 500 million reproductions of this picture and others like it have been made. Some say 1 billion images of this picture. It's famous in part because 500 million copies of it have been made. It's also famous because this was the first image of Jesus in which he's portrayed as a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Westerner. Which, of course, he wasn't. And it's also uh, the picture that, that made it fashionable to think that Jesus had long hair. Because Warner Salmon was among the many who confused the Nazarite vow, which Samson took and said, I'm not going to cut my hair, with being a Nazarene, which means you grew up in Nazareth. Okay? Jesus almost certainly didn't have long hair. Another reason this, this picture is criticized is that it gives Jesus rather delicate features. Some, some would say feminine features. It, at the very least, it doesn't make him look like a blue-collar guy who spent most of his life in the construction trade. Right? Where are the muscles? Where are the calluses? Where are the scars? Now, my concern about religious Jesus is that it fuels the idea that many people have that Jesus was first and foremost a nice guy. Right? A very kind, gentle man who always used his inside voice 
and, and was fond of small forest animals and uh, was a lot like, really, Mr. Rogers would be. And I want to remind you that uh, that's, not the, that's not the picture we get in this book. I mean, you don't crucify Mr. Rogers, right? You give him a TV show for children for 35 years. Jesus was not predominantly gentle and nice. He's loving and gracious, but that is just part of who he is. He's bigger than that. The final backwater that many people get uh, trapped in is Jesus, who's pretty much just like me, only nicer. Right? Jesus thinks like I think. He's just a little bit nicer than I am. I'm 30 years into following Christ, and I can tell you that there are, um, if you pay attention, there are lots of groups that co-opt Jesus. I've seen the NRA Jesus and the vegan Jesus, right? The, the, the Republican Tea Party Jesus and the uh, Occupy Wall Street Democratic Jesus. There's the, there's the capitalist Jesus and the socialist Jesus. I've seen pictures of Jesus as an African, Jesus as an Anglo, Jesus as an Asian. I've seen pictures of Jesus as a woman. Okay, the challenge here is that none of those images are very helpful. It's everybody saying, well, Jesus is a lot like me. He's just a little nicer. At the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, a church that's built over the site, believed to be the spot where uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, uh, Mary, you have found favor with God. You're going to give birth to the Savior of the world. There's a big church that's been built there, big outdoor uh, courtyard. And throughout the church, there are pictures uh, of Jesus and Mary that have been sent from 150 different countries. And if you look at these pictures of Mary and Jesus from 150 different countries, the thing that jumps out at you is that everybody paints Mary and Jesus to look just like them, right? You've got Finnish Jesus and Filipino Jesus and Ugandan Jesus and Canadian Jesus and Mexican Jesus. Everybody is making Jesus look just like them, only a little nicer. That's not Jesus. And so I would say to you, come and see. Come and see this man. He is bigger than you ever imagined. He is better. He is more gracious and more disturbing. He is wiser. He is, he is, he is greater and more glorious. He is more demanding than you ever would imagine. Starting next week, we uh, begin this series. If you want to be a part of it in, in sort of the full-orbed way that we're doing it, uh, then we would love you to do a couple things. First of all, uh, to, to be in a small group, to read this. We've got copies of the uh, six lessons in this book that I wrote, The Life of Jesus Christ. So in the lobby today are copies of this book along with the workbook and uh, a DVD. And the DVD is to be watched in your small group. We would love for you to be in a small group. 
We would love for you to be discussing this starting not tomorrow, but next Monday there will be daily devotions. If you get the monthly updates from me, then you're on that list. If you don't get monthly updates from me and you want to start getting the daily devotions that go with this, you need to send in your email address and let us know. If you are uninclined to read it, but you would listen to the six lessons, we've got those on uh, CD uh, for you, but want to encourage you to take a next step, to, to make this a priority, to come and see Jesus. And so uh, pick up the stuff in the lobby today. If you're not in a small group, you have the option of hosting a small group. We've made this as easy as possible for you to do that. And you can talk with Jamie in the lobby today about what that looks like. If you're not in a small group and not particularly interested in hosting a small group, but interested in being in one, then you can sign up on a different list and we will do our best to get you placed in one. Let's look at Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, with new energy and new insight that you would allow us through uh, your word, through your spirit, to understand with greater clarity uh, your son. And that uh, we, would, we would meet with him in new, profound, life-changing ways. I pray for those who know Christ that, um, that he would end up being more who he is and less like we are. And I pray for those who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord that, that his life, his teaching, his claims, his, the beauty of Christ would jump off the page. God, and direct us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.